thanks so much for coming along to your own podcast studio <laughs> for the Collabs Conversations podcast. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, we're really excited. Like this, as, as we sort of said before, this is something we've been planning for a while um, and I'm really keen to sort of get what you guys are doing in the lab out. Not that you need that much more press. You've been uh, in the press quite a lot lately, which is really exciting. But um, I think from our point of view, we're really interested in getting like the the origin stories and how people got started and all of that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, maybe we can start somewhere there. Uh, I might lead with Paul and then Andy, lads, if you want to follow up. Um, I mean, you've had a very interesting career, like very nonlinear, lots of different pivots and places that you've gone, you know, from banking to founding Absolute MMA. Like what, what, how did you end up here? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm sure you can look back in retrospect and go, ah, yes, I connected the dots. But, I mean, you were even in politics for a while as well. Like this there's so much more than, um, yeah, it's like just than a normal, let's say, startup or biotech company. Like there's quite an interesting background. Yeah, I've definitely done a lot of things and there has been a lot of pivots. And, you know, the industry that we're in now didn't even exist you know, five, ten years ago. Mm. So, um, yeah, look, it has been a, a really interesting journey. Um I guess going back, you know, way, way back, um, you know, to, to childhood, I, look, I had always had an affinity with, with animals and um, was uh, pretty nerdy at, at, at school and uh, had a bit of a, uh, I guess, a penchant for, you know, mathematics and um, uh, did the, you know, the usual thing um, and went to university and studied economics at, at university and ended up doing a... Um, uh, a postgrad in applied statistics, which is really, really boring to, to, <laughs> to most people who couldn't think of anything worse. Um, but for me, you know, that was uh, that was just my aptitude was for, for was for maths. Um, and so, um, yeah, look, studied economics. Uh, always wanted to get involved in in business, um, but with I guess that uh, you know aptitude for for maths, ended up doing uh, quite a few different things. Uh, my first job actually uh, out of uni was um, uh, at an insurance company. Um, again, not the most exciting um, place place to start, but I had done um, like a few different um, a few different jobs while at while at uni. None of that are really worth um, mentioning. But very varied and, and, and different things. But um, yeah, I guess coming coming out of that, and I actually ended up uh, not long after working at Tabcor and um, building prediction models there. So again, utilizing that you know maths and, and and stats background, and then eventually yeah, ended up in in finance and working at uh, NAB and at ANZ, and again at uh, NAB, I was working in the the mortgage space there. Um, so again, very finance related. We were, I was involved in building, again, building models, um, uh, application models, so scorecard application models, so for when people apply for credit and, and that sort of thing. So predicting out, you know, performance um, from that. And then, yeah, worked at ANZ where I managed the fraud analytics team. So my team was responsible for building models um, to predict um, and capture fraud. So whether that's, um, you know, credit card fraud, application fraud, all those sorts of things. So that was for the banking system straight wide. 
um, which was really interesting. It was a, frauds a really interesting space and, and picking up, you know, patterns and, and all that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, so, so that, was, that, was, that was really interesting. But I'd always had an interest in, in business and having my own business and had a few, you know, different ideas um, throughout, throughout those years. Uh, but eventually ended up establishing uh, Absolute MMA, so which is a mixed martial arts gym um, based in the CBD in Melbourne, well, in, in multiple locations now and and internationally as well. But I'd always had an interest in fitness as, as well um, and was doing martial arts uh, and then partnered up uh, with uh, with a good mate of mine who had experience in the in the gym space in terms of personal training studios and, and that sort of thing. And we were doing martial arts together at the time and, yeah, we just yeah, came up with that idea to, to establish um, that. as back in, uh, I think it was about 2010 we started. And so, like, UFC and all that sort of thing, you know, was not mainstream, was not popular, um, but we knew, you know, from the from the people that we hung out with that we were doing martial arts and every class was packed and everyone had a gym membership and everyone had a martial arts membership and it was super expensive to be trying to do both. So we're like, wouldn't it make sense to combine these two things in the one facility where you can do all of your training, you can get a massage, you can see, you know, your nutritionist, you can do your martial arts and just, you know, do it all in the one place with the one, one membership and it all just made sense. So there wasn't a lot of like analytics that went into establishing the business. We're just like, hang on, we want to do this. There's a whole lot of other people that want to do this. Let's let's set this up and, and go from there. And so we did that and I had that business for, for many years and then uh, eventually sold out of that and established a, a finance brokerage, um, Boss Finance. So... Um, that sort of, I guess, ties back into my experience at um, at NAB in terms of the finance side of things. Um, but throughout all that time, so I'd been vegetarian um, since a teenager and uh, I went vegan not long after I started the gym actually. Um, and so was really heavily interested in, in that space. So, I mean, I guess veganism, um, you know, forms a large part of my life. Um, so I've been vegan for nearly 10 years now, 19 years. And, you know, the, the, the martial arts team was great and I was, you know, passionate about, passionate about that. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, the absolute driver in my, in my life. It was just something that I enjoyed doing. And again, having the finance brokerage as well, again, um, interested in numbers, interested in helping people. We work with a lot of um, self-employed clients. I was dealing with a lot of entrepreneurs, which is, you know, what I, what I enjoyed. Um, so, you know, helping self-employed clients, doing a lot of um, business lending and, and that sort of thing, which again was great, but no, not my absolute passion. And then, yeah, through, through activism, um, you know, and talking to people about, you know, plant-based diets and veganism, um, you know, traditional animal agriculture and all those sorts of things. Ended up, yeah, as you mentioned, getting involved with um, the Animal Justice Party. Um, so back in 2016, I actually uh, ran uh, as the lead Senate candidate for the Animal Justice Party up in, in Queensland. Um yeah, and did quite a lot of work with them. So running the party up there, was involved uh, nationally as well as national treasurer, um, doing a whole host of roles. So, you know, that's running an election campaign, um, uh, you know, running the party, managing volunteers, you know, uh, speaking at uh, rallies, you know, talking to, do, you know, doing outreach, um, talking to politicians about, you know, law reform and, you know, um, lots of bodies about um, law reform and, and all that sort of thing. But for me... 
something I'm really passionate about, um, but it was really difficult in terms of having impact. So, you know, driving, driving behaviour change is really hard, you know, when you're talking to, 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 to anyone, to like, you know, for humans, behaviour change is, is really hard and, and, and diet and um, nutrition and meals and the culture around that is, is really uh, you know, embedded and a really personal choice. Um, so, so for me to drive behaviour change that way was was really difficult, um, and I think just is in general. So, I was always looking for something that could have a bit more impact. I mean, because obviously law reform is you know is a long, lengthy process as well, and politics and the political system is is really difficult to enact change in. Um, you know, particularly when you're you know you're a very small minority and probably a minority of you know, not just the population but the political system as well and all that sort of thing. And you know, um, I didn't love the politics of politics, which sounds really strange. You know, you're you're coming to it quite idealistic, and you know you're going to want to make these changes and you can have this influence and all that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, that's not how politics actually works, how, how the system is set up. Um, you know, there's a lot of leverage involved, you know, what can you do for me and I'll do this for you and and, and all that sort of thing. So, you know, we've got a lot of, you know, large incumbents, you know, industry-wise and uh, politically uh, in Australia as well. So it makes things really, really difficult. And so, you know, for me, things weren't moving fast enough in terms of, um, you know, what I wanted to do and, um, you know, have a, have a large impact for animals. So, yeah, started, um, I took a break from activism um, and started looking at different ways that, you know, I could have that impact. And then obviously, you know, food's a really large part of that. And we think about, you know, where animals are, you know, most used in terms of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the global system. Most of it's in food and, and food products. And so a lot of people suggested I get involved in a, you know, a plant-based product. Oh, I created a plant-based business and, you know, created, you know, a better substitute and, you know, you know how far, you know, veggie burgers have come and, you know, people are interested in that. But I knew that wasn't the answer because, you know, I'd spent hours upon hours talking to people in the street, you know, just about their, their diet and behaviour. No one wanted to know, right? No one wanted to know about, you know, plant-based diets and eating a veggie burger. They all wanted to eat meat. And so not only was that incredibly frustrating, but it was really for me to be have you know on the ground experience I'm like people do not want to change right they want to keep eating meat and so that's that's when I did more and more research around you know what was possible um and many people and you've probably heard me talk about um reading Paul Shapiro's book Clean Meat where he talks a lot um about what was uh, at that time going on um overseas and a couple of companies that were looking at you know this technology and and trying to create products whether that was you know um you know, leather products or you know food products and, and that sort of thing and so that was really the the turning point for me i had heard about cultivated you know meat previously or cultured meat or clean meat or lab-grown meat however you want to um, describe it and i had heard about it previously and, and as a vegan i was like not interested in that like that's that's you know why would I be interested in that? You know, I don't want to eat meat. That's, you know, that's not for me. You know, that seems like a strange idea. But the more and more I thought about it um, and realised that it's not about me, it's about people that want to eat meat. That's that's where the change needs to to come from. And so I thought about it um, more and more and I'm like, hang on, we can create a real meat product so people don't need to change their behaviour. It's the same product that they have been eating for years and years and years and years and years. But there's the opportunity here, you know, using a particular technology where we can, um, you know, produce a, a real meat product with the same taste, the same texture, the same mouthfeel. It's it's not a it's not a veggie burger. It's not a substitute. It's it's real meat, 
um, it's 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 going to be better for the environment. It's going to be more sustainable. It's going to use you know less land, less water. It's going to produce less greenhouse gas emissions, and we're going to be able to produce it at some point much more cheaply than we can currently produce or in the future produce traditionally farmed products. I'm like, why wouldn't people choose that? Like, why wouldn't why would you not choose that product when when given a choice because a lot of the the complaints around or the feedback around you know plant-based products or, or plant-based substitutes is they don't taste like what they marketing says they taste like because they're not you know so a plant-based lamb doesn't really taste like plant-based lamb you know plant-based beef doesn't really taste like plant-based beef you know it's Without any disrespect, like it just doesn't because it's not the same product. Right? It's it's completely different. So, you know, plants don't taste like meat. Meat tastes like meat. And so, yeah. So, look, when I came across the technology and um, thought it could be possible, I sort of um, went all in, in in that space. And I actually made a couple of investments um, in in the space. Uh, and then, not long after, decided I was starting my own business here in Australia. And that's when I went looking for people to help me to to do that because, obviously, you know, with all that um, you know educational um, background and, and work background, I don't have a science background. You know, I'm not a scientist. Um, I'm not a food scientist. I've got a fair bit of experience on the on the business side of things, obviously, and and bringing people together to, to work on something. Um, and I guess even reflecting on, um, you know, the mixed martial arts gym, you know, that was, um, you know, really me coming in from the business side and from, you know, the personal training side. But, you know, there's no way I can teach, you know, every martial art. And so, you know, that was a process of bringing in, you know, the best boxing instructor, the best Muay Thai instructor, the best, you know, BJJ instructor, the best uh, wrestling instructor, um, bring in a good, you know, massage therapist, bring in someone to talk about nutrition, you know, all those sorts of things. And, you know, people laugh when I talk about that, that experience when, when they're running, you know, a, a food company in the, in the biotech space. But it is a very similar process, right, bringing in the experts in each of those areas to, to work on a project. Um, it took me a bit longer to, to find those people because, you know, I'm not from academia, you know, I don't have, you know, a large network in the, in the scientific space. Um, and so, you know, it took a good, you know, 12 to 18 months for me to find the right people because I knew the type of technology, well, I thought I knew the type of technology that we, we wanted to use for it to be scalable because I, I spent a long time researching, um, you know, the field and the area uh, and obviously, you know, the original um, product that was produced, you know, the, you know, the beef burger um, by Mark Post, which I think was 2013, you know, and, and it cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and they could do it in the lab and I'm like, you know, that's all, this is all great, but if there's no point in us doing the same thing, right, it's, it's not going to have the impact, it's going to be too expensive, it can't be scaled. And so, you know, from my research, um, uh, you know, to me, it made sense that we would use uh, induced pluripotent stem cell technology, you know, which is scalable, um, uh, you know, can be done at obviously a, a lower price point because it is scalable and it has all the benefits of being able to produce, you know, different cells and, and tissue types, um, only requires the one sample from the animal, cells proliferate indefinitely. We don't have to go back to the animal. So um, all of those things. And then obviously not using, you know, FBS as well, so fetal bovine serum because to me, you know, ethically producing cultivated meat products and still killing animals just doesn't make any sense. Like it just does not make any sense. And so, you know, I, I, with that in mind, you know, I went started talking to people who all thought I was crazy, right, <laughs> who all thought I had no idea what I was talking about. Didn't think it was possible. Didn't think it could be it could be done. Um, 
And on the other hand, I had a lot of people tell me that they could do it, they had done it, um, yep, yeah, no problem, which I also knew wasn't true. So I, I got sort of both ends of the, of the spectrum, um, which was a really interesting lesson um, for, for me. And then so, look, after, uh, you know, a really long um, search right across the world to, to try and find the right people, you know, to work with, you know, these livestock cells um, and to, to do it without FBS and to use induced pluripotent stem cells, um, yeah, obviously a lot of people I spoke to, uh, well, th- throughout the, the industry are from the uh, regenerative medicine industry and, li- and life sciences. So they've done a lot of those things with um, using FBS and using human cells. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a real challenge. Um, and funnily enough, you know, the best people to work on the project are in my hometown of, of Melbourne. So I didn't need to do all, you know, I didn't need to go all over the world to, to, to find them. And ended up reaching out to um, CSIRO uh, here in in Melbourne, in in Australia, and 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 that's where I met Andrew, and that's where it, it, it all sprung from 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 there. Ah, mm. oh, it's so fascinating hearing you. Um, I guess multiple times making indirect references to first principles, you know, and how so much of the patterning and processes you've learned in your previous organizations have actually led to you then being able to play that out in a totally different context because so much of it is translatable. Um, yeah, it's always really interesting when you hear the backstories and you can see how it makes sense and it can be woven together. But, you know, obviously at the time you might not have known it. Um, but no, I thought that was really cool. And as well, um, I kind of, I've never really thought about this, but now that I do think about it, um, Magic Valley, it's almost kind of like your organization is a form of activism in a way. Um, which sneaky activism? Yeah, don't, yeah. Don't, don't tell anyone that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's, say, let's let's say it's um you know through the conventional pathway of a commercial organization, yeah. right? But it's still you are still trying to put a line in the sand and be like, this is what we stand for, um, and we're going to be able to make this happen. Um, and I think it's really it's really interesting to hear someone try and use the vector of business instead of um, trying to go through the political side of things or other areas because. This is always the thing that it falls back on, jobs and growth or, you know, how. what about the economy? So I guess in a way at least you're kind of addressing that and acknowledging that, um, you know, you're saying behaviour change can be difficult with food. <laughs> Try doing behaviour change from like an economic perspective. Uh, that is even more baked in than let's say like religious worldviews, um, the worldview are based around our current economic system. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, how you've managed to make that all happen. Um I'm just so curious with the martial arts stuff. Do you think that any of the skills that you learned through practicing martial arts translated to you, uh, to your work? So like I heard you mention quite a lot of times, you know, the, the need to pivot and to keep constantly adjusting. Is there any, did you, do you feel like there is any translation between the two? Yeah, a couple of people have asked me similar um, questions. I should probably make it clear that like I'm not a professional fighter <laughs> and you know not, not an elite martial artist. Um, anyone that's you know trained with me or, or seen me train will certainly attest to that. So I just just make that point clear to, to begin with. But um, look, I think potentially, um, obviously, you know, there's a lot of discipline required, um, and you know, it, it, with any you know, I guess physical e- endeavor, um, you know, that you want to get good at. Um, so look, I think there, there, there probably is, um, it's not something I've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how that, um, or how, you know, skills I've learned there have, you know, I've, I've applied in, in, in other areas. 
but I guess it is, you know, it is a, you know, um, somewhat of a you know, mental model. You know, you've got to go from this position to that position. You've got to think on your feet. You've got to be able to, you know, strategize. You've got to be able to change that strategy. So I think there probably, I think there probably is. Um, Even the theory of mind stuff as well, like you're having to model another actor in the agent arena sort of relationship and just even thinking about that first, second, third order, you know, they're things that you have to think about strategically when running an organisation. So Multiple moves ahead. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't want to just have you sitting there, Andy. I'm I'm enjoying the conversation. (laughs) I think this was a a really perfect segue actually, sort of mentioning how you met at CSIRO. did you want to pick up the story from there, Andy, and maybe give us a bit of a background on your story and how you got to where you got to then? And then feel free to lead the charge from then on to here. Yeah, so well, very briefly, my, I'm, a, I'm a reasonably traditional scientist. I did a, a science degree. I did a couple of postdocs, one in Hong Kong and one in uh, Philadelphia in the United States. I came back to Australia and have been working on human pluripotent stem cells mostly since 2001 so over 20 years so when and when paul came to me or paul found me through csro inquiries and it wound its way through the behemoth that is csro uh to someone who knew about stem cells and we'd actually interestingly enough we've been approached by a few different entities at CSRO around different aspects of cellular agriculture and uh, B2B products and things like that. Um, so when Paul came to us and he, he'd obviously done his his research and my, my response to him when he laid out um, what he thought was the way it was all going to work and what could CSRO do, do for him, my response to him was, um, we have absolutely no idea if any of that is true. Um, we went back to scientific first principles. We said, there's no published information, definitely no peer reviewed information on whether what you're laying out will actually take place. So together we worked out, um, and this was done as contract research while my team was still at CS, while I and my team were still at CSIRO. Um, what are the very first steps we need to take to see if this using stem cells to make a meat product can be done without using any other animal products which was the, which was the the, the tough question yeah. so that, like a like a like a like a mvp model like a benchtop mvp how exactly. long did that take it, well, the initial <laughs> scoping project i think we did over 3 or 4 months didn't yeah we? the covid didn't help yeah. mm. um so a lot of it was done remotely uh then the initial experimentation was done over another three-month period. I think so it's about six months all up. That's pretty impressive, to be honest, like to be able to get like a, like a valid sort of MVP. It probably wasn't at the, the as a... Was it more like a... Okay, we, it was more like a proof of concept pre, yeah. pre-MVP. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't a... Given the the regulatory requirements, for it's not like you could eat it. it was no, not, yeah, exactly. I think that's a really interesting thing, actually. Like, like how do you label what you're doing? Because you see this all the time with science. Someone goes, "I've got an MVP," but like, you know, it's not necessarily. You know, you're like, it's like, it's no. This is a a prototype of an idea to prove that it's possible, but it's not actually. You know, I feel like you kind of see that people trying to force the the tech bro mentality onto biotech when it's like 
this thing literally needs to take time to grow. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear how you've managed to, um, yeah, deliver on these things. And do you call, like, do you just call them milestones? you call it an MVP product? Like how do you structure that? So, I mean, the way I think about it, and that may not be the way other scientists do it, and I come from a fairly formal academic background. So I, I in usually writing grants to get money um, from government, um, so NHMRC, ARC type grants, where what you want to show is that you have proof of concept that it's possible and you have capacity to do it so that the experience that you have, you could potentially carry it out. And, and that, that pretty much carries across to the way at CSIRO, you're more industry facing and you're looking at um, pushing things along the pathway through the valley of death um, to commercialization and to industrialization of processes. So what we were talking about before, um, that's done at a very small scale on the bench top. That, and it's done using um, what we can get our hands on. It's not necessarily uh, done in the best or the cheapest way. It's the, it's the first quickest um, proof of concept that it can be done. Taking that process and then extending that and making that into a manufacturing platform, which could be used on potentially different species and at a much larger scale, every every single divergence from the, the initial start point requires testing. So you, you need to know whether it's going to work on another species, it needs to be tested, you need to know is it going to work in the, the scale of a few hundred mils to a few thousand mils to, to thousands of litres? Um, we can model that, but until you actually do it and test it, there are the parameters that you need to test all need to be checked uh, along the way. So we're, we're all, all along that pathway now um, and moving towards a, an MVP. And, and there's all sorts of other um, aspects to that in terms of... Um, regulatory environments, safety, um, and from a not coming from a food background, understanding the, the micro, microbiological sterility. I'm used to sterility in terms of potentially doing things to, towards a, a human therapeutic, but um, it's, it's different for a, a food product. There's different levels that you have to, have to meet. So it's, um, it's um, uh, fun continuing to learn even at my advanced age. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, you called something out that's interesting there, that it's it's almost like you're never finished. It's like an iterative evolutionary process through which you're going to have to constantly be going through rather than like a, like a striving towards a fixed, you know, MVP. So you obviously you've still got like goals and KPIs that you're aiming for, but it's um, it seems from from what I can tell that especially in the in the biotech space, it kind of has to be like that because it's it's not a fixed thing. It's not like a piece of code. You know, which is immutable, um, so to speak. It's like a living thing. Um, no, that's fascinating. But um, just a quick point on, and both of you were talking about multiple steps ahead. So some the process has to be fixed when you apply for regulation. So mm. you, you, that's the MVP that we're shooting for, to, to fix our process in place for a specific product or ingredient. But as soon as that's fixed in place, then we're, we're working on the next thing. The, or the next iteration um, because we can clear headspace and actual people time space to add more species, to 
take it up a notch in terms of the the scale that we can culture cells at and things mm. like that. So because when it's with the regulators, it is locked in space and, and time for as long as they need. Okay. I'm trying to get my head around whether so obviously there must be a big difference between industry and academia, right? I feel like um, industry is more of a push or, or like a, and academia is more of maybe like a pull towards a grant. Or I'm, I'm trying to see, is there is there enough relatability or was there a bit of, let's say, like culture shock between um, the ways of working or you're saying that because CSIRO is more industry focused, you were kind of used to it? Like is there any, I guess, um, are you using like, design thinking principles or sprints, you know, or are you trying to keep it more in the traditional style of doing the science? Like, cause I assume there's a compromise on quality when you're trying to rush things. Like it would be interesting to know how you sort of found uh, from both sides of it, you know, how you found working with a more entrepreneurial in mind and sort of like, let's get, let's get it done versus you know, the other side of flip, like the flip side of that working with a scientist, because these, these are really interesting stories and like trying to figure out how to make that work and how do you, sort of harmonise those different sort of worldviews or approaches to making things happen. So I close my ears now, Andrew? No, not at all. <laughs> I think it's in, in – so I'm not representative necessarily of, of every scientist that works in academia or has worked at CSIRO. Um, my thinking has always been what is termed blue sky mm. type research. I always – like to think of the really long-term implications, the impact of the research that I was doing. So uh, looking at understanding more about the, the basic biology of cells initially to, to make it safer and make it possible for human pluripotent cells to be used as therapy or screening. Um, so things that are quite a long way down the track. And I was within the first couple of years of of human embryonic stem cells. I was working with them and I was my lab was the first in the country to work on human-induced pluripotent stem cells. Mm. Um, so I think... So it's like discovery. Like if we're going to label phases yeah. of research, you are more discovery than like a translation. Than tra but at CSIRO we, we moved... Or a lot of my projects were more... a little bit more contract research but also... Um, uh, commercialization of mm. research tools of, of things that we discovered along the way that were helpful to us that were also helpful to many other researchers around the world so large companies were willing to pay money to license them from us and or pay csiro for perpetuity or for the for those products um the the biggest difference between csiro and, and magic valley is is, is the budget mm. And the, and, the, and the facilities that are available. Uh, at a, an organisation like CSIRO, you, you have um, IT on the phone at any, any, any time. You've got people walking all around the country in different time zones, so there's always somebody there. You've got HR, you've got access to multiple million dollars of, of the latest equipment um, that is staffed by incredibly experienced scientists who are world experts in that, in that machine. At Magic Valley, um, I had to work out where we put the cardboard that we unpacked our monitors from because <laughs> there was nobody to tell me where it went. Um, it's 
I'm not. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a comic example, but it's. It's. It, de- I feel. I feel the cardboard. That's definitely. <laughs> <laughs> especially at the lab. My gosh! Like every every week, it's like. What do, I, what do I do with this? Where does this go? So don't I was having a giggle. I'm like, yeah, that's a thing, definitely. But what I, th- what I think that's taught me is that, um, one, there's a lot of money wasted in large organisations because you, you don't have to be resourceful. You, you, you can just buy more equipment, buy more, um, more of the, the latest product that come, comes out. You don't have to necessarily go back to first principles to work out hey can we do this a cheaper way can we can we do this a more efficient way it's this is this is let's just try this i mean it's it's not like you have a unlimited budget or anything like that um but and you have to justify your budget and you have to apply for grants to 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 bring the money in to do that but the way the system seems to be set up that 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 type of research as opposed to more biotech R&D, is, there's a, seems to be a lot more money available from, from governments to do that type of research, the, the discovery type research, which is important, don't get me wrong. I think just and where do you make that cut? I don't know. Um, but I think that the, the R&D and the translation and the taking small scale to large scale often gets left out of the equation because it's not as not as sexy it's it's not a breakthrough i was gonna say i feel like that's exactly why we exist because of that sort of systemic issue um and the fact that there are perverse incentives that it's not necessarily anyone's fault it's just the way the system's set up um like we don't want to blame anyone we don't want to blame uh, any of the players in the space like they're all doing the best with what they've currently got and the way the structures are and a lot of them couldn't change even though they acknowledge that they wish they could um but yeah it's so fascinating like i hear you say that and and then collectively feel our pain about um <laughs> resourcing and equipment and everything um both that like through magic valley and collabs um you know they, it's crazy when you think about like there are companies where it's like they have to spend this money because they have a budget of 20 million dollars and if they don't spend that budget they only going to get 15 next yeah. year yeah. so they're like oh well we're, obviously we're going to go and buy three of this thing that no one's necessarily going to use uh and then a lot of that old equipment just gets thrown out you know which is why we ended up setting up the phoenix school program the science charity we have but um yeah it's it is it's hard to comprehend when you're working in a certain way in a and with a certain amount of budget and finding behind you and then as you said coming to something like a startup and then being like wow like what would happen if we actually took that mindset with something like a CSIRO or with government money and we actually, instead of just blasting it around, if we took that sort of startup mindset, it would be fascinating to see what would happen. But yeah. I feel like that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> yeah. But just, I just get picking up on that point, I guess, you know, my background, you know, from, from establishing the gym, you know, we, we leased out an old disused Indian restaurant um to to fit out um the gym you know over multiple um levels and you know hundreds of, of square meters but you know there was a there was a grease trap in there that we had to you know clean up and, and replace we had to put in um you know bathroom facilities showers you know all that sort of thing which was you know which was difficult but not not that difficult right so we took we took over that premise and, and turned it into it and turned it into a gym um with, with my finance business you know, we went and rented you know office space all, all, all quite simple things 
trying to get, you know, Magic Valley started um, and just go and rent lab space was was a near impossible task because, you know, I spoke to most of the universities around the country and, you know, they they didn't want to let, you know, know, a private company in to use the facilities, which is where a lot of the facilities, you know, are in terms of lab space, equipment. Equipment in the biotech space is really expensive, as as we all know. And a lot of it's sitting there unused. There's a lot of lab space unused, um, but they don't want to. They don't want to. They don't let you access it. And they, if they, if they, the model they have is, you know, for you to do contract research with them, um, that you know, you you, uh, you know, obviously pay for, uh, and then you know, those organisations want to retain the IP and license it back to you, which no one in their right mind would enter into that agreement. It just makes no commercial sense whatsoever. This is why we've got a one out of ten ranking when it comes to translational research and IPs and patents here in Australia. Hundred percent. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and so you know, I think you know, during that time, you know, that eighteen months when I was trying to you know find people and and then and then a space to work, I, I think I might have talked to to Andrew Gray, your, your partner, at that. Point sometime back then, and then um, you know to see if you know there was any potential space available and that sort of thing. Um, uh, and it just took months and months and months. And I, and I know you were flying. I remember a conversation that we had, Sam. Um, many conversations that we had, but <laughs> how you were so not desperate, but um, just wanted to help us so much and, and get us space um, to work on what we were doing. And I'm ever so thankful for that because we we had nowhere to go. Like we would have had to build our own space from scratch, which we just didn't have the money to to do. And so all the time speaking from personal experience, yeah. Yeah, or probably the yeah. skill either. To, yeah, to be yeah. to be fair, um, and so much that goes into that in terms of regulation and of the space and you know all, all that sort of thing. So, you know, the fact that CoLabs exists um, is is it's just amazing. Like, it, it, I, and I, I'm just I'm just so thankful that not only do you have the space, but you're able to get us into the space. You know, I, I know there was I know you pulled a number of strings to be able just to get us a bench space. You know, with within the lab, and so. You know, everything's everything's growing from there. But without that, none of this would have happened. Yeah, no, thanks. It's um, yeah, I, I know, I know what you mean by pulling strings. I, that that felt like um, like negotiating a peace treaty. That, but um, <laughs> no, it ended up it ended up really well, and I think it's been really exciting because there has been um, just some like some flow between like both sides, and it has been, I guess. It seems like it's like a nice amicable space, like having multiple companies working in the same sort of space, um, which was always our vision for it. So I think, um, yeah, rightfully so, people were a bit like, oh, can we make this happen? But I think that, yeah, once you realise that totally different platforms, totally different technology, and we're all trying to make good things happen in the world, um, I think that sort of change happened. Like I think you were just actually having a coffee with James. You just rocked up to the lab um, just before... Um, before I left so um, yeah I think that's what's so nice about having a space and having a community of people who are trying to strive towards like what you mentioned before I, I we kind of branded as impact oriented innovation and there is so much scope and potential for that within the life science sector like there <laughs> pretty much everything we've done up until now using um, the scientific method and quite a lot of other uh, approaches let's say like modern industrial sort of complex like they're all of the reasons why, I mean, it's really effective, but it's also all the reasons why we have all these problems that we're facing now. You know, whether it's the environmental crisis, the like social crises, um, food insecurities, all of these things come from us maybe not thinking about like the ethical or moral implications of things and, and maybe not 
only trying to maximize financial value rather than thinking about value as a holistic concept where there's, you know, I hate to have to financialize it, right, but like social capital, like ecological capital, knowledge capital, spiritual capital, like there are all these different things which, you know, we should value and we should respect. But um, I guess the current paradigm, as I said, um, you know, might not necessarily value them the same. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just it's so nice to be able to have um these conversations and hear that sort of stuff um we don't i mean we we get that sort of feedback enough from people but it is um yeah i mean i guess that's why we're here and sometimes it's nice to know that the suffering is not for no reason right <laughs> i probably should have given you that feedback earlier um <laughs> but i think you know one of the uh, one of the things i learned um you know through having the gym and you know we probably had you know 20 staff and you know, 600 700 members or whatever um the culture is, is really important and, and the culture really comes from the leadership. So I think, you know, what you know, your mission, um, you know, at Collabs and being impact driven, you know, yourself and Andrew and and providing a facility for like-minded people to come and work on those sorts of things really drives the culture and sets up the culture for us all to, you know, some of us are working on the same thing, some of us are working on very different things, but we're able to collaborate. Um, and whether that's, you know, um, you know, physically in terms of what we're actually doing and what we're trying to produce or whether it's, you know, just support or, um, you know, advice or guidance and all those sorts of things, I think it's really important. So, again, congratulations on the, on the culture that, you know, and the, and the business that, that you've set up because that that's what enables all of that. For sure. And then I guess like uh, I'm just going to play ping pong on this one, right, because I think that that wouldn't happen unless we didn't support motivated people trying to make a positive change that are inspiring. Like, right. And I think that um, in the risk of this just sounding like a, like a compliment tennis, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's for us it's like we have to function like a semi, like, yes, we're accessible, affordable infrastructure, but not everyone can get in, right? Like so I, won't, I won't mention the exact sort of company, but, you know, we've had people... <laughs> People reach out for space and we're like, that is that is a hard no, absolutely not. Um, not a crazy amount of them, but you do find some people trying to, let's just say, do unethical things or maybe do things that I would say support or sustain the current way of doing mm. business, which is no longer viable on this planet. Um, you know, so there is a there is a like an element from us like functioning like a semi-permeable membrane. So we have to be making sure that we are curating the right sort of community. Um, and it's just, it's so important. We see it all the time. There's so many, like we call it like engineering serendipity. There's so many random little conversations that will pop up around lunch or at a, at a community gathering or something like that. And all these different things that it's, it's all nonlinear and you never really know how it'll play out, but it's always really exciting to see, um, collaborations appear or, um, like even, um, even things like we, the Yarra Riverkeeper coming in and they're looking at making a, a microplastics filter to remove um, plastic from the Yarra River. And, you know, VJ might be um, looking at helping a little bit with um, his understanding of fluid dynamics. Mm. So, like, there's so many fun and exciting things where people are happy to help out, which that can save uh, an organisation or someone, you know, months of work or thousands of dollars just by one little conversation where someone's like, oh, have you tried this or have you thought of that? And those sort of qualitative things are so hard to, like, where do I put that in my my grant acquittal for the, for the, you know, like everything's jobs and growth, rightfully so. It's really easy to measure and it's kind of bloody important um, for, for, um, for the government who are our primary sort of funders. But, yeah, it's hard to quantify a lot of this sort of stuff because it's all qualitative. But it's, I would argue it's almost more important than the facts and figures. 
Um, sounds like you're kind of echoing that from you know within your team as well. Absolutely, right. It's building that ecosystem you know, that, that 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 hasn't well, it, it's been fractured or, or segmented, I guess you know previously, but bringing bringing all of that together, and as you said, you know, being able to work on on different ideas or help help other people with with those ideas you know just having those contacts or experience or whatever you know, without having that central hub that i mean none of that would have happened you know you wouldn't make those connections you wouldn't interact with those people so yeah and that's intangible right yeah, yeah. collaborative not competitive is yeah. is, is is how it feels um there's there's examples that you wouldn't even be aware of of, of guys like cortical labs helping us out with equipment and things like mm. that that it's yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, I mean, uh, we 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 try and do our best to 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 not always speak it, but show it a lot of the way in which we try and carry ourselves with everything. And um, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Is that we try and really bring like we're all there's no, <laughs> such a small ecosystem, and we're all striving to do good in the world. It doesn't really make any sense if we're like not helping each other um, and even from like an emotional perspective, like trying to go from zero to one in any space is a big, big thing. And especially if you're pushing against the standard narrative, like it's just having other people who are around there who can even just be like, I totally, I totally get, I get you, I understand. Yeah. You know, that in and of itself can be massive because sometimes you go home or you chat with friends and they're just like, I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> like, Can't relate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even that side of it I think is really um, something I really appreciate and I think it's been great being able to have you guys around. I think it's really been a, a key part of being able to cultivate that culture. Um, so, yeah, thank you for making that happen. Thanks for having us. Exactly. Any, yeah, anytime. I think um, I've liked where this has gone. Like obviously there's all the questions but I kind of like leaving them as a – as a bit of a like a maybe we can go there and just sort of see where it emerges. But um, I think I might kind of bring it back to some of the stuff that you're doing. So you, you mentioned earlier um, regulations, you know, because like obviously you thought maybe we can try and tackle this from the political side of things. Now kind of you, now you are tackling them from an organisational side of things but back to that political side of things, right, because there's so much that you have to go through from a regulatory stand to to make things happen with Magic Valley. So how has that progress been going? Like, it's So where we're at is we're, we're not quite ready to submit a, an, a regulatory application. There's a fairly well-described pathway for novel foods to get regulated in Australia, um, but... Because it's novel foods of any type, it's necessarily very broad in terms of the the instructions that are there in the mm. in the in the manual. So interestingly, in a couple of weeks, um, there's a, a a group getting together in Sydney, um, including the regulators from different state governments and the federal regulators, the Food Standards Australia, New Zealand, and um, various companies representatives to talk about them. The regulatory side of things and it's 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 difficult for everybody because one it's new and two these regulatory bodies they don't have unlimited people and unlimited funds to deal with every question and every type of new thing that comes along so there's there's it, hopefully it's going to get easier with time and as products go through and get regulated and information comes out that will 
make it easier for new products, but also make it easier for the regulators to know the products that are grouped into specific types of categories. So your, your synthetic biology, your precision fermentation, your cultivated cells, um, what types of questions and what types of uh, testing needs to be done for each of those and are they different, are they the same, et cetera. So mm. it's, a, it's a really interesting time um, and, and I think it's happening worldwide uh, in this space uh, and different. I, I was reading a, an article yesterday, it was more of an opinion piece, saying that there's a real opportunity for countries to put together a, a relatively streamlined but careful novel food pathway and they will potentially have quite a large boom in terms of products coming through and new companies and jobs and growth. Mm. So it's it's be fascinating to watch what happens. Are you seeing anywhere potentially taking that leadership anywhere around the world? Like to my mind, uh, from what I can say, what I can see, right, it's like the only place I know that it's legal is Singapore. Is it legal in the States? Is it legal in Europe? I know that Italy <laughs> straight up banned. Banned it. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you seeing glimmers of hope anywhere around the world? Yeah, I think so. So in Singapore, there is one regulated product, but that was over two years ago and nothing has gone through since, So, mm. um, which is interesting. In the US, there's a couple of products. It's a complex regulatory pathway in the US where you need to go through the the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and then you also, and this, to be clear, this is for cultivated meat, not for any other of the products. So you've got to go through the FDA and through the US Department of Agriculture. Um, so two large companies have received uh, a no further questions from the FDA, which means no further questions at this time, which is like a tick. But then need to be their facilities need to be approved by the uh, USDA, mm. and, and that hasn't occurred yet. And uh, at least one of those was over six months ago that they got the, the no further questions. So the the exact pathway is not yet laid out for for people to see. Um, one good thing from those uh, no further questions asked is that redacted and not too heavily redacted versions of the applications were then made public. So that gives a lot of information to, to, to um, other regulators and to other companies around the world to the sorts of things that need to be achieved. But the FDA deals with all of the human clinical trials with human cell therapy, which is quite different than a, than a, a chicken nugget. Um, mm. um, so are the barriers or are the um the standards that are being set are they necessarily appropriate and that that's the sorts of things that regulators who i know talk to other international regulatory bodies um will be discussing and, and are discussing as we speak i think yeah it's fascinating because yeah, it's, it seems like it has been handballed quite a lot from different regulatory bodies around and almost like yeah, because it doesn't fit firmly within a category as you're sort of saying, like, yeah, it's cultivated meats and this has come from regenerative medicine, but it's actually a food product. It's not a therapeutic. Like, And since it doesn't fit a box to tick and it's being sent to tick boxes, it's kind of there's a lot that has to be 
figured out to make that happen. But it's also like if you look at it, I'd love to know like from a lobbying perspective or like because like, I'm sure things get fast-tracked or I'm sure there are other things. Like, look, I guess maybe it's just food, right? But I'm just in my mind I'm thinking about like junk food, e-cigarettes, all these other things or like social media, all these other things that just can be let out into the world without having to worry about any of that, right? So it's kind of like it's interesting or like do like restaurants don't need to go through, you know, fazans. Like it's, you know, it's, it's interesting to see all these roadblocks. Obviously it's important, right? But it's fascinating just to see like are some of these roadblocks there for the benefit of the people or are they just there like a some tech just flies through, you know. I don't know. I just thought I'd put that out there. I'm curious to see what your thoughts are. Yeah, we're wading into dangerous waters here. <laughs> um, you're right, though. I think there's a lot of you know really large you know incumbents um, occupying the space at the moment in terms of food, um, which I think is going to be you know challenging, as it would be in any industry where there's you know large incumbents that you know want to protect their commercial interests. And you know, I think we've we've definitely indirectly felt that um, already, and I expect that uh, that to to, to uh, become you know a direct issue at some point um but you're right in in terms of you know other products and, and other industries not uh you know having to to deal with all of that unfortunately we we do <laughs> there's no escaping it mm. yeah i think what's in something interesting that we've spoken about offline as well is like aligning with those people who might originally kind of see you guys as a threat and then them realizing that actually this could be a strategic way to diversify their portfolio and it might actually be beneficial. Um, have you sort of thought about how you would look at, again, bringing back that, um, let's say the, the jujitsu approach, have you thought about ways of grappling with that um, and how you can work with rather than against bringing on this sort of collaborative theme that we're talking about? Have you actually had any of those sort of discussions with other people in the space? Yeah, it's funny. Early on um, when we were just getting started, I had a number uh, of um, traditional um, producers re reach out to me um, to see whether or not we could, you know, develop products and how much of that was genuine and them trying to find out what we were doing. Um, mm. It's hard to, hard to put your finger on. Um, but there were definitely um, some, some large-scale uh, producers that – um, I had a, a few conversations um, with, uh, but but also a number of the, the the smaller producers as well for for the very reasons that you mentioned. You know, they wanted to safeguard their their business and and, and their livelihood, and they, they wanted to understand like what we were doing. Is this going to be a threat? You know, and 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 work out the the lay of the land. And I think it very much depends on you know who you speak to within those uh, organisations as well. Um, we found typically that, you know, people in the, the younger demographic are, are more probably, you know, uh, accustomed to change and ready to change and more open to adopting technology, which I think is just a generational thing. You know, it doesn't, not necessarily in food, but, you know, just, you know, willingness to adopt technology um, and to see how that could work rather than doing, you know, not the same thing we've always done. This is the way we do it and, you know, all, all those sorts of things. I mean, the world is changing, you know, even if we just talk about the climate and, and those sorts of things. So things have to change. And yeah, it just really depends on on the people you speak to. They will either see you as a, as a, as a, as an irrelevance 
uh, or they will see you as a threat or they will see you as an opportunity. Um, so that's been the experience so far. So, look, I'm open to, to all of those conversations. Um, so, yeah, look, we'll just see how that plays out. Speaking of open to conversations, um, how has it been going trying to close a funding funding round? Like it sounds like there's been a lot of conversations over the past couple of weeks that I, I've even sort of seen walking in and walking out and um, it sounds like conversations is a big part of what you're doing at the moment. Um, how is all that how is all that going in this current climate? Like mm. I know it's pretty pretty hectic trying to make money appear. Yeah, so the the, the fundraising um, climate or, or environment has has been uh, really quite challenging probably for the last almost 12 months, uh, I, I would mm. say. Uh, and that's not just in our industry. I think that's in, in every industry, just given what's going on you know, in the world and 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 macroeconomically. Like SVB Bank kind of threw us yeah, in the yep. works for everyone, hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of that is... A lot of that comes back to sentiment as opposed to any real impact. I think a lot of it's sentiment driven. Um, and in the space where we're looking to raise, you know, in the, in the venture capital space, um, you know, a lot of it um, unfortunately is uh, a little bit of, of, of group thing and, you know, what's the, the latest and shiniest and brightest thing that we can, you know, get into and invest in. And Is it a Web3 DAO crypto <laughs> yeah. food source? Can I buy it as an NFT? Exactly. Yeah. Are you an AI expert? Um, yeah. So there's, yeah, so there's a little bit of that. And at the moment, you know, as we've seen, you know, particularly in our space, um, food tech and, and even more so in, in cultivated meat, um, you know, the amounts that are that are being invested have, have significantly reduced. And so... It's been a really, um, you know, difficult conversation to articulate, you know, our differences, you know, our key um, differentiators in terms of our technology um, and that sort of thing. And so there is a lot of, there's still a lot of interest. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, there's, there's been a lot of people, you know, come through, come to the lab, you know, have conversations with us, you know, whether that's government or private or, or whatever the case may be. But it's definitely a really difficult um, fundraising environment at the moment. And so, you know, for us, you know, as, as you were talk, talking about earlier, you know, reaching those technical milestones is, is really important. You know, for us, you know, cell line development and then creating the, the prototypes, having tastings, um, and then, you know, next thing for us is really, you know, scaling up and, and regulatory approval um, to be able to show that progress, um, you know, to investors to say, look, hey, we said we're going to do this and we did this plus this. Um, you know, is really the, you know, the good news story, I guess, around what you're doing. But uh, we do get a lot of questions around, you know, regulation, regulatory approval, you know, commercialisation. Um, a lot of people don't understand where the industry is actually at. Um, you, know, we'll get, you know, we'll get questions like, you know, oh, what are your sales? You know, how, how, you know, how much are you moving? It? It's still a really large education piece around not just the industry but, you know, what we're doing in particular, um, you know, and trying to explain how our technology is different and get people to, you know, be able to, you know, see that and, and make comparisons and, and those sorts of things. But, yeah, no, look, it's definitely a challenging fundraising um, environment right now. Yeah, I think um, just, just picking up on something you said there, it's like, trying to explain to people that it's biotech but it's not just tech like it, it's not SaaS. we're not going to thousand x in like three months you know we're not going to run a b tests like it's not like the the process of doing deep tech you know i would classify um you guys as deep, deep tech biotech right um and that sort of thing the pathways and the and the feedback loops and the time it takes to get anywhere is so much longer and you really need 
those investors who have the understanding of the intricacies and the nuances of it all. And um, yeah, and I guess as well, like uh, what was it? Like the last two years have been bumper investment um, periods for um, biotech and maybe maybe with, I don't know, the, like, I'm just curious to see why, because you were thinking, was this a discussion we were having? Um, only like a tenth of the amount of funding um, that went into life science and cultivated meat from last year has gone in this year so far? In the first quarter of this year. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I, I tend to think of it a little differently in the last 12 months in that um, spin warning, but um, we haven't had money, so we haven't been able to waste money, but we've learned a lot in mm. the last 12 months that if we'd had a lot of money, we would have wasted some of that money. And we also haven't diluted the, the cap table. Mm. Um, and we've learned a lot in 12 months. So to me, it's it's not all negative that, that the, the the funding climate has been so difficult in the last year. Just don't ask me for any new pieces of equipment. Then. Yeah, that's all right. Well, I, I've just been bidding on some in a secondhand <laughs> thing for us, so we should be right. We've got a, we've got a couple of pieces coming through. Um, but, yeah, no, I think it's a really important thing that you mentioned there is that um, you can always turn shit into flowers um, first and foremost. But I think that you guys being able to stick around, right, and still be able to make the projects happen is testament to your resilience as an organisation and your adaptability. And I think that by being able to do that um, and having space to be able to make that happen, um, that's kind of like <laughs> that's actually useful. You know, and that's, yes, sure, it might, may have taken longer than you thought to close, but the fact that you're still here making stuff happen, um, I think that's testament to it. And, um, yeah, so. Thanks. How much would you like to invest? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I would if we could. I honestly would. I, I, say that, I feel like there's a few companies that, that, um, that we've got that we'd love to be able to support in that way, but, um, yeah, we just don't have a couple of billion dollars up our back pocket. <laughs> Um, yet, yet, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I, it's just, it's fascinating because, you know, like, me being being in this space, um, again, is kind of subtle form of activism to to your point as well. And I, yeah, even just having to get over that aversion towards money um, as a concept, rather than seeing it as a vehicle for optionality and for positive impact. Mm. Um, I, I grew up very, um, very much in that progressive side of thinking, where it tends to be the many of the problems tend to emerge if you follow the money um but yeah realizing that it actually can be a, a a good vector for a vector for good if you can share a positive narrative and and speak to the positive impact that can come from it um yeah it's fascinating um just those sort of alignments there i think that's really interesting um oh, what flavor ice cream do you reckon magic valley would be um magic valley uh, it's not going to be lamb flavored ice cream or pork flavored ice surely not i mean i was going to say bubble gum but ah. i'm really not sure well we're definitely not vanilla yeah <laughs> i like mango but mango bubble gum and mango yeah yeah i like bubble gum but i think that's much better <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> I have, to, I have time for bubblegum. I don't know what collabs would be. I mean, colour-wise, I guess we're pistachio, but um, <laughs> flavour-wise, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We, we like we The thing is, is we like all the different flavours of ice cream, you know. So yeah. 
it's a difficult one to answer. But um, yeah, you know, important important questions we've got here. Definitely not fillers. <laughs> um, I want to bring it back to something you were saying before, um, Andrew. You mentioned that you know the cardboard was one element, like just figuring out that sort of stuff. What's the least scientific thing you've had to do when it comes to like jumping into the entrepreneurial role at Magic Valley? Uh, I didn't think I would be quite so involved in social media, being on podcasts. Um, I can't see you as a TikTok guy. Actually, no, maybe you should do the TikTok. I do hear you have a dance background. Uh, it's, it's pretty well known as my circle friends that I, I do dance. Um, but, yeah, at Magic Valley, the least, uh, look, I, I I think I'm the, the go-to person for the printer. <laughs> I know how to work the printer at the office. Um, the uh, key barista, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, well, the coffee machine, but that's pretty scientific, I, I think. Fair. Um, you don't see it as an art? It's more of a science for you? Uh, it's a bit of both, a bit of both. Um, you've got you to have your um, reproducibility there mm. and then you can add the layer of art on top of that. Um, yeah, no, it's... Look, I think this is scientific, but it's translating science to business talk. And it's something me and Paul talk about a lot in our podcast is they're actually two different languages and communicating between the two and working out how to talk about the potential without misleading people, without making stuff up. With it, but still saying, well, no, well, this could happen. We just need to do this, this, and this. It's 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 developing that skill um, without having people glaze over because I'm talking about um, um, uh, induced pluripotent stem cell reprogramming, blah blah blah, um, which tends to people go. The business people tend to not want to hear about that too much, which mm. makes sense. But I like that you say that it's a balance because I think that's something that's so important for startups to get, right, is that you don't want to just be full Theranosing because um, then you'll get sent to jail, obviously, yeah, right? I'd like to avoid that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. even part Theranosing. Right, right. <laughs> Never go full Theranos. But uh, that's still an important point there of like because startups thus far and especially in the tech space, you kind of can BS hype like that and be like, yeah, we're going to be the best thing ever. And like you kind of see this happen with a couple of biotech companies over in the States. I'm not going to name anyone. And now there has been a couple of colossal fails in the space that have happened because people are just making things up. They're just like you've got a hype, essentially a hype person, um, you know, and a lot of them do have really strong technical backgrounds, but I feel like that's always the issue when you're doing this zero to one work or really pushing the boundaries of what's possible is having to find that balance between this, this, this current sci and the sci-fi um, and also just like not completely trying to use the, that sort of marketing rhetoric to say all these sort of things and not be able to deliver on them. Um, yeah. And I, it, I'd be curious to know how, how you've been finding that balance. Is, do you feel like you've come to a place now where you're comfortable? I'm a lot more comfortable than I was at the at the beginning. And and we uh, Paul's been really, really a really good mentor in that in terms of of um 
well, Paul and Jacob, actually, the, the conversations that we have around how can we say this? How can we say this better? How can we say this so it's not misleading? Um, and, and we do. We workshop that internally before before we we head out to to the bench capital or to whoever we're, we're speaking to. Yeah, I must say I was actually really impressed with the way you were handling some of your, I don't know, you call it hate speech? <laughs> what do you call it? Trolls? Trolls. Trolls, yeah. Yeah, eh, trolls. I don't know. Just like there were just... The way that that was, some of that um, response was executed, I think, was some of the the best handled approach to um, dealing with dissonance in this space. I think I've seen. So, um, yeah, was there was there is there a plan behind you? Do how you deal with this sort of stuff, or it depends how we're feeling on the day. But <laughs> um, no, look, Ella's been really good in in that space in terms of you know highlighting um, you know some of those some of those comments, um, you know, calling them out. Uh, but then also educating around them as well, mm. um, you know, because there, there's still a lot of, uh, you so know. calling mis- out or calling in? I feel like it's a bit more calling in than like it's not trying to other, which I think is a nice a nice approach which you don't always see a lot of the time. So. Yeah, no, you're right, you're right. So, um, you know, a lot of, there's still a lot of misinformation and we try to do as much education, you know, um, you know as possible. Um not just for us, but for industry wide uh, as well, because obviously, you know, for any of us to succeed, you know, the consumer has to consume the product. You know, the, the end consumer is, you know, is what it's all about. So, um, yeah, look, we take a, you know, a, 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 you know, an approach to you know educate people that might be you know misinformed about you know what we're doing or the process, and we try and be as transparent as possible around that process, which we think is important for you know, everybody to understand where their food comes from. Um, and so, yeah, look, we do get, you know, we do get some of those comments and, you know, um, you know we, we think it's important to, um, you know, to address them and, um, yeah, do what we can to, to inform people. And, and it's a bit of a team approach that Ella will say, we'll, that will check the science with us sometimes and say, oh, is this right? Should we, if, um, Has um, she got a science background at all? She's doing a science degree. Yeah. yeah, okay. I was going to say I just I felt like there had to be because it just felt like too high a level of understanding to just be like some casual account manager. No, no, no. Yeah. No, no, she's she's definitely um, got science. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's – no, it, it makes a, a, a big difference I think. Um, I'd, I'd also love to know um, – we have kind of spoken a bit about um, obviously the, like the financial stuff, but have there been other any other challenges like aside from lab space and aside from the financials that you've had to overcome, you know, like either as a team or um, as an organisation in the last little bit? Like I find um, a lot of the time we, maybe not in this one actually, but a lot of the time, you know, it tends to always be like the elevator pitch and all the positive stuff, right? But uh, what are some things that you feel like you've had challenges you've had to overcome and you're now sort of stronger for it? How long have you got? <laughs> um, you know, it's that, uh, whatever that meme is, you know, of the duck that's, you know, madly pedaling below water and, you know, everything looks fine on top. I, I mean, I think that goes for, for, for any startup. Um, you know, we've had a lot of um, challenges. Probably in the, you know, the last 12 months we had um, – 
you know, some some challenges around um, you know some of some of the the tech that we that we had to uh, to overcome. Um, you know, we, we we were fairly long way down one path, and then realised we had to change paths and you know almost start you know all over again um, in terms of what we were doing, which just delayed things you know substantially. Um, you know, in terms of hitting those milestones and, and being able to do that, um, you know, for, for me, that's probably the biggest um, hurdle that we've we've faced um, over that you know that past twelve months. Um, there's been plenty of others um, though, but I think you know a key part of that is is managing managing the team, managing the the culture and the environment. Um, you know, uh, we're lucky that, you know, a number of our team have startup experience. I've worked in startups before and they, they understand that there's a lot of ups and downs. You know, they understand that there's funding challenges. They understand that, you know, they've got to help out with different aspects. You know, I mean, Andrew's a great example. I mean, the whole team, you know, I throw everything at them and everyone, you know, helps out with different parts of the business that they have never experienced before, have no experience in, you know, Andrew's all over, you know, Twitter and Instagram and all. All, you know, all over social and we're doing podcasts and all that sort of thing. You know, we take Wendy as another example, you know, um, who's a research scientist, you know, trained cell biologist, you know, doing all our chefing, chef. cooking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, same with Jacob. Um, yeah, can, can go on and on and on. So, you know, having having that and having one's, everyone's buy-in in terms of, you know, what needs to be done and, and what we're doing is um, super important and we're, we're really lucky in, in, in that regard mm. um, to be able to overcome those challenges because, you know, you do need, um, you know, a lot of resilience because there are a lot of ups and downs. There are a lot of unexpected things that happen, um, you know, whether that's um, you know, pieces of equipment breaking down or not working or, um, uh, you know, not being able to get your hands on, um, you know, being able to, to prove out certain um, you know, data points and, and those sorts of things, you know, getting thrown, um, you know, random requirements from potential investors that you're speaking to that, you know, want to see, you know, various things. Um, so people being sick and other people jumping in and, and covering um, and or even starting to work before before they were meant to and, and coming on board with and just jumping straight in and, and really helping right from the get-go. Yeah. And how important do you think that impact-oriented vision is to making that happen. Um, oh yeah, I'd love to know because, yeah, it feels like it's such a strong part of, like, your culture and what draws people to what you're doing. I, I, I think you're right. I mean, that would be, um, you know, my impression as as well. Um, you know, based on the the, the team that, that, that we've assembled, um, you know, everyone is very much, you know, mission-aligned, um, which I think uh, definitely helps with with that with with the culture, um, and that's evolved pretty naturally. Um, to be honest, you know, obviously, you know, I founded the business, and I've got you know fairly you know strong views on um, you know our ethical approach and, and those sorts of things. Um, but I guess you know that has potentially you know attracted you know similarly aligned um, people to to, to the organisation and, and to coming to to work with us. Um, you know, even to the point where you know we we have we have no advertised positions. We haven't advertised for a role for nine seven, months. Eight, nine maybe. months, yeah, yeah, like a, a long time. Yeah, we, I will get you know seven to ten unsolicited job applications a week. You know that people want to come and work with us, um, and I don't hear that from other companies in the space. I hear other companies in the space, you know, struggling to to find people and to hire people. Um, you know, and so I. I, I 
I, my, you know, my guess is that you know our our, our culture and you know our um, mission alignment is probably a key driver you know, in that. Um, that people want to come and work here, you know. So I hope that means that people have heard good things about us, you know. So, um, yeah, look, I think it is really important and, you know, I ask, you know, I ask a lot of, of the team um, in terms of, you know, not just, you know, striving to the goals that we're achieving, you know, in normal business hours, but we do a lot of, you know, stuff outside of business hours, you know, whether it's events and, and that sort of thing, you know, um, talking to the community, you know, attending conferences, all that sort of thing. You know, we do so much weekend work and we do so much night work. I mean, you know, we're talking to people overseas in different time zones and that. So, look, I do ask a lot, but, you know, every everyone is on board. And, um, yeah, look, I, mean, I personally appreciate it, but I think, you know, it does all tie back into that mission alignment. Mm, yeah, I mean, like we see it day in, day out at the lab. Like there's people who are pretty much a part of the furniture. Right? They're in all the time making things happen. Um, and it's just a really exciting thing to see when it's coming from it feels like a like a yes, sure, you're pushing, but it does feel like a pull. It does feel like people are going, you know, I, I'm trying to actively do something and I feel like this has a like a positive some good to add to the world, uh, which I think is really exciting. Um, now, when we're talking about scaling this tech, is there any other tech that you're reliant on which doesn't exist yet to be able to get it to scale. You know how like when you when you look at people going, yeah, we're going to we're going to get net zero by 2030 and 70% of that's going to be something that doesn't exist yet because science. Um is there any element of that that you think like with scaling up is there stuff there where you're like we're hoping something comes through or is is your pathway at the moment we're pretty confident that this either exists or it's possible to do. Or do you get sort of what I'm, where I'm coming from from that perspective? Like, mm-hmm. obviously, this would be way more um, more ethical, right? But um, currently, like like with all science, right? And, and and this is just all innovation, right? It's kind of like um, the life cycle of any living system, right? A tree will extract more nutrients from its environment as it's growing. Um, you know, and then once it reaches a stage of maturity, then it gives back. It creates space for animals in all the hollows. It actually literally shares nutrients through the mycorrhizal fungal network with other trees, even from different species. So, you know, is this sort of a thing where, you know, you're, you're acknowledging that now it's kind of taking a fair bit of energy and, and resources to make this sort of stuff happen. It's definitely going to be able to get to scale. But, um, yeah, like from an environment, like, like is it energy? Is it, um, you know, media? What are the things that you see as like the next things that you really need to sort of tick off or that might be adjacent but not a part of the core sort of tech? Mm. I mean, Angie can probably answer this better than I, but from from my perspective, I think all the tech exists already for, for what we want to do awesome. and, and, and to scale. Um it can just be done better because we're a new industry, you know, and we're, we're only, you know, very, 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 you know, we're not even at zero, we're, you know, minus one basically um, in terms of where the industry is at. So my viewpoint would be that all the tech, you know, is there, you know, ready to, to scale. We can just do things, you know, um, more efficiently, um, cheaper, um, uh, you know, more sustainably just as the industry itself develops. But you know, Andrew's probably got a better yeah, perspective on it. And I'd agree with what Paul said, but I think where there's, um, and I think what you're digging for, in a sense, is space to play and space for innovation to occur. And uh, to me, that space is 
is not in the scale up. It's not in the, the development of media. It's in the recycling of what comes out as the waste product mm. from the media, from the, from the cells and what parts of that can be reused and how can they be reused and but how can that be done cheaply and efficiently so like closing the loop on the material sort of elements of what you're doing is a is a big area of interest uh, i think it i think it's it's the way to really significantly bring costs down or um bring in other income streams mm. um with what's coming out that if it can be used for somebody else's fuel or something else yeah some, 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 something like that i there's there's lots of ideas but but translating those ideas into industrial processes is, is as we talked about a, a long pathway mm. and again like a like before you can qualitatively expand you kind of need to be really nailing that core tech but as you said as as you progress as an organization there might be these emergences of like uh, industrial, like it's like industrial ecology. You know, one organization's waste is another organization's uh, income stream or food stream, so to speak. So, I, I feel like inevitably there will be things there that can be woven together. And um, I mean, that's an exciting space that we'd love to explore and see how that develops. Because from my limited understanding, um, that is a major area of expense. Um, that that if that could be alleviated, it could be. I don't, I don't know the exact figures of how much they could bring down the cost of the product, but I feel like it is a sizable chunk um, if there could be some sort of re, reuse or a reduce or reuse element woven in. So reuse I think is, is, is doable already. I think it, it's more um, the bits that you can't reuse, what can be done with them. Mm. Not easy. Yeah. I mean, you, you see, we, we see it all the time just in, in the lab space in general. There's so much like even single-use things, like total total tangent here, right? But one of the ideas we had was like how do we how do we stop that and stem the tide of single-use plastics? Surely we could reuse or find a way to work with some of the providers because um, it's just so much of it. Um, and it, again, it's like there's nothing – if that's the best we've got, you know, you don't really have a choice but but to use it to some extent, right? And yeah, it's um I guess yeah, I was wondering whether or not there's anything like that where you're sort of like, oh, we kind of have to do this now, but you know, in the future it would be great if X. Um yeah. A, a, a much cheaper grade bioreactor <laughs> would would be with a, with a, a material that's that's cheaper to manufacture and safe and meets the regulatory um, requirements would be would be would be something that we're not directly working on, which would be very useful. All right, we'll put it out there into the <laughs> just manifest it. Do some some secret style stuff. I'm sure we can make it happen. Um, I'm wary of time. How long have what do we what do we got? What are we feeling? Because I know that you're going back to back on the whole talking thing. Yep. Yep. Probably getting pretty close to yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it okay? Well, then let's definitely call. It. You're more than welcome to call it at any time for future <laughs> reference. <laughs> so good. Um, but yeah, I think maybe we'll maybe we will call it here then, so that sure. you can fit that one in. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think this is really interesting. I think there's so much more that we could talk about. So you probably get wrote back in for another another chat sometime soon. Pull you in onto our podcast. I think it'll be the way to go. Yeah, two. Yeah, part two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy to flip the switch for part two. We'll make it happen. Um, but, yeah, thanks so much for your time, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. It oh, it's been great, Sam. Thank you. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs>